the Odyssey by Homer narrates the journey of Odysseus, lord of Ithaca. And you know the story of how he goes off to battle and fights in the Trojan War. After the war ended, the heroes, the Greek heroes who fought in that battle, returned to their homeland, to their country. But Odysseus does not return. He has been captured by Calypso and is held there on this island in prison, her prisoner. Eventually, Odysseus is released. The, 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 the Greek gods intervene and he's released. And he sails away on a raft. But of course, he battles. He battles years going from island to island in the Mediterranean, fighting against the elements, fighting against great odds, fighting against mythical creatures like Cyclops. You know the story. And eventually after much difficulty, struggle and loss, he arrives in Ithaca where he reclaims his kingdom and reunites with his wife and family. The Odyssey is a journey of human persistence and struggle against, against great obstacles and, yes, of human conquest. But the greatest story of the journey, the motif, is explored in the scriptures and particularly in the story of Israel's 40 years wandering in the wilderness. This is the greatest story regarding a journey. It is a journey, however, not in which one man or a nation receives praise for their perseverance and persistence and their ability to struggle and to endure. It is a story in which God is the hero. For it is God who sustains Israel for 40 years in the wilderness and brings them into the promised land. The book of Numbers, which we began considering some time ago, is the story of Israel and their wandering in the wilderness. The first 10 chapters, at least up until chapter 10, verse 10, we see Israel preparing. They are positioned at the base of Mount Sinai, and they are about to move towards the promised land. And so the first 10 chapters see them prepare. We see them leave Mount Sinai in chapter 10, verse 11 of Numbers, and in a few days they arrived at Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea, that's a place that we should never forget. They arrive at Kadesh Barnea, at the southernmost part of Canaan, and they are about to enter the land, but, but, but Moses sends spies into the land. You know the story, don't you? And they go into the land, and when they came back, the spies, most of them, apart from Joshua and Caleb, says there are giants in the land, and the people refuse to enter. Because of this one act of refusal, they spent some 38 years in the wilderness. They wander in the wilderness 
for 38 years. In our passage, that is in Numbers 20, the journey is about to recommence after 38 years. This is now the 40th year. In the first month of the 40th year, Israel will set out to the very borders of Canaan. They are going to move in this third part of their journey to the staging area for them to enter into Canaan. And right here in chapter 20, we have a story about Moses which I want us to reflect upon, and particularly the disobedience of Moses. When you look at this story, as you have it in Numbers 21 to 13, we have, first of all, a unit which charts Moses' disobedience and his dishonor of God. Israel is encamped in the wilderness of Zin, northeastern Sinai region, in the whole area of Kadesh. And the word Kadesh really means holy place. That's where they are. They are about, as I've just mentioned, to embark on this last stage of their journey before they enter into Israel or into, into Canaan. There we receive a death notice. They are at Kadesh in the first month of the 40th year since they have left Egypt. And the story begins with a death notice. Miriam dies. She is the sister of Moses and Aaron. She is the older of the two, that is of Moses and Aaron, at least of Moses. She is older than Moses. She's the one who, when they came out of the Red Sea, led the women of Israel. She was the one who sang unto the Lord. But now she dies. There's another death notice in the chapter in verse 24. Numbers 20 verse 24. This time of Aaron who will die on Mount Hor. So the passage begins in a, in a sort of dismal, on a dismal note. Death is there. We read then that no sooner had they buried Miriam that they are accosted by the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are not in a pleasant mood. They are very unhappy and they let Moses know all about it. First of all, they, they are complaining about the lack of water. They seem to have forgotten that when they came out of the Red Sea, that God had provided water for them. They seem to have forgotten all of that. And this makes Hegel's truism worth mentioning, that the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. They never seem to have recognized that God had blessed them with water before and therefore could do so again. And these people, as they complain against Moses, they express their deep satisfaction. They, they are so dissatisfied that in verse 3, that they inform Moses that they wish that they had died with their brothers. That is, in chapter 16, we saw the rebellion of Korah, where Korah and his brethren had gone up to God and offered fire. That is, they had offered worship to God that was not required. Unholy fire. And the, the earth had opened up and swallowed them. These people are saying in verse 3 that we wish 
we had died with our brethren before the Lord. Not only were they content to, to tell Moses that they wished they had died, they made Moses into a scapegoat for their problem. Moses by this stage was 120 years old. And you can imagine that they were saying, you know, this, this fellow must have, you know, his past is prime. He's losing his marbles. Who would have a harebrained scheme of taking us into the wilderness in the first place? And they forgot, for instance, that it was God who directed Moses to lead them into the wilderness. Because the Lord, we are reminded in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it was God's intention to, re, to, to reveal their hearts, to know their hearts, what was in, in their hearts. It was God's intention that Israel should know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is, our lives do not depend upon the food we eat or the houses in which we live, but rather upon God's word. And so they are quite annoyed with Moses. In fact, they charged Moses with evil intention. They contended with him. In verse 4, why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? M Moses is trying to kill us. He's brought us into the wilderness. Furthermore, they not only made him a scapegoat for their troubles, they also go on to, to, to blame Moses and to suggest that they did not have the bounty that they had in Egypt. Because they no longer have the grains and the grapes and the pomegranates that they had when they were in Egypt, you said in verse 5. And so what they were suggesting is that they were not being adequately cared for in the wilderness. What they seem to have forgotten, in fact, you know, they call this an evil place. You see that, you see that in verse 5? Why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? Very often at least in ancient Near Eastern mythology, the wilderness was seen as a place of chaos, a place where, where demonic spirit haunted. But the evil place in which they were, it's not the, not the wilderness, but it was Egypt. They were under the yoke of the Egyptian and under Pharaoh for over 400 years. They were brutalized. Their children were being ripped apart and killed. And yet they're saying to Moses... Why have you brought us to this evil place? They have escaped the clutches of Pharaoh. They have seen the marvelous work of God for over 38 or over 40 years. And now they were complaining that they have been brought into this evil place. Now, faced with this mutinous crowd, Moses does what every pastor and leader should do when God's people are not happy with them. They should run to the Lord. And he does that. He be, beats a hasty retreat and goes to the Lord to pray. He falls down with Aaron before the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him in glorious, dazzling presence. God comes to meet him. And the Lord gives very specific instruction to him and to Aaron. So the Lord tells him in verse 7, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. That's the command of the Lord. Take the rod, 
the rod that was in the Ark of the Covenant, the rod of Aaron that budded, take this rod and assemble the people. We're not quite sure how the rod played a role in the assembly. Perhaps Moses simply held it up before the congregation and they, it was a sign and they gathered to him. We are not quite sure. But he's given a very specific command, first of all, to gather the nation, to gather Israel. And secondly, he is told to speak to the rock. And water would come forth that would assuage the thirst both of the people and of the animals. All he had to do was to speak. Now Moses began responding to the command of God and his response was a model of obedience. In fact, he began doing everything he was required. He gathered the people with Aaron's rod. But at the critical moment, Moses, the meekest man on earth, the humblest man on earth, fails the Lord. And he fails him big time. Quite evidently, Moses had gotten to the end of his feather. He couldn't take it anymore. Let's be clear, this is not the first time Moses had been in hot water with the people of God. They had spent many years, I would say to you, that 40 years of complaining was enough. At least I believe that's what Moses thought. I can't take this anymore. These guys are always complaining. They're always finding fault. I'm going to let them have it. I have enough of it. I'm going to let them have it, and I'm going to make the rock have it also. He blew his cool. He blew his top. He became angry. And he thundered to them. He thundered to the people of Israel. He said, hear you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then he lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. You know, we, we can all identify with him. Somebody keeps on picking away at you and picking away everything you do, right? Every day they keep on doing the same thing over and over. At one point you're going to, ah, it's just going to come all out of you, right? And when it does, you generally feel good. You don't have to bow your head. You don't have to nod your head. But I know it feels good. I've been there, right? It feels good. And Moses perhaps felt good after telling, calling him a rebel, striking the rock. He got it out of his system. In fact, you know, there was year, years ago I saw a report that was saying it's good to get angry. Because when you get angry, you feel relieved afterwards. You feel cool, you're quite happy and, and good afterwards. It's such a, a pleasure to get angry. You should get angry. Well, whether Moses felt great about being angry or not, God was not pleased. Because the Lord said to him, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, to hollow me in the eyes of the people and the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. First of all, the Lord speaks about Moses' action. And first of all, he interprets Moses' action as an act of unbelief. That in this entire episode, his outbursts, his lashing out, stems from a failure to believe. And there, the, the Hebrew word for believe is the word amen. It is a word that we find in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where, where Abraham believed amen, believed God. 
and it was credited to him for righteousness. This is the term amen, which means that which is reliable and sure and faithful. He did not think of God as reliable and faithful at this particular moment to deal with the situation and to deal with his people. So the Lord says to him, because you did not believe, you did not believe in me. Very interestingly, these are similar words that the Lord uses of Israel in chapter 14 of this same book. Because when they refused to enter into, Israel, into, into Canaan at Kadesh Bani in chapter 14 verse 11 of Numbers, the Lord says to them that the reason that they did not enter in was because they did not believe in him. Now, Moses is accused of the same behavior that the children of Israel had exhibited before God. He is accused of unbelief in God. He's not trusting in God. Hence, his outburst of anger and striking of the rock. But it is not only that he is guilty of unbelief. Moses' failure consists of disobedience to God. What was the command of God to him? What did God tell him to do? Well, the Lord told him, assemble the people, get the rod, assemble the people, and speak to the rock. Well, what did he do? He assembled the people, but he struck the rock. He therefore disobeyed the Lord. He rebelled. And if you skip down to verse 24 in this same chapter here of Numbers 20 and verse 24, you will see that the Lord characterizes their conduct as one of rebellion or disobedience. Here the Lord is talking about the death of Aaron. And in verse 24, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. And so his act was one of rebellion. He refused to do what God required. But not only must we see this as an act of rebellion or disobedience, it is an act of rebellion which results in irreverence towards God. Irreverence towards God. You notice in verse 12, the Lord says, Because you did not believe in me to hollow me, to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. There the word to hollow is quadash. Quadash from the root quadosh, which means holy. He refused to hollow me, quadash, to set apart, to treat as holy, to treat as distinct. In other words, to reverence. You did not hollow me. You did not reverence me. You did not consider me worthy of honor. Now, why does the Lord not only charge him with unbelief and charge him with disobedience and disobedience I think all of us can see but why does the Lord say that he did not treat him as holy in the eyes of the people honor him set him apart before them it's interesting that there are two other accounts in the Pentateuch where this instance this incident of Moses' rebellion is referenced uh, we find in Numbers 27 verse 14, Numbers 27 verse 14, Moses of course is recounting this and he says that the Lord said he did not 
hallow the Lord. He did not set him apart. He did not, he rebelled against the Lord and did not hallow the Lord in the people's presence. Again, towards the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy 32 verse 51, the same verb, quadash, is used. He did not hallow the Lord. He did not set him apart as holy. But in what way did Moses fail to set God apart? Yes, we know he did not believe in God. We know he, he did not obey God. But in what way did he dishonor God? In what particular way did he dishonor God? Well, Psalm 106 gives us a clue as to what the Lord meant by Moses not honoring him. In Psalm 106 and verse 33, the psalmist makes this interesting comment about what Moses did. In Psalm 106 verse 33 we here we are told that Israel rebelled against God's spirit so that Moses spoke rashly with his mouth. Moses spoke rashly with his mouth. So that he dishonored God in what he said. And what he said boils down to this little word, we. What does he say? Before he struck the rock, he said, shall we bring water from this rock? And in that instance, he stole the glory from God. You see, God had told him to speak to the rock. And there's a reason why God told him to speak to the rock and not to strike the rock. For in Exodus chapter 17, God had already brought water from a rock and Moses had struck the rock there and water came forth. Now God was about to do a greater miracle. He was going to do in the presence of Israel a miracle where he was going to bring water. And by the way, let's understand that the water he was going to bring was not a little trickle. A little tap, tap, drop, drop, drip, drip that comes from your facet at home. This was going to be a torrent of water. You know that because it had to be enough water to feed, to, 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 to assuage the thirst of, of over two million people and perhaps a million animals. So there was a torrent of water. And God had in, in, in Exodus 17 brought water from a rock just by Moses hitting the rock. Here he said he's told to speak to the rock because it is the, now the power of God's word that's going to produce the water. Moses was to then command the rock in the name of the Lord to produce water. But by refusing to do that and by saying, shall we bring water from this rock for you, he steals the glory from God and intimates that it is by his power, his ability that the children of Israel would receive water. He therefore stole the glory from God. He did not hallow the Lord. He did not reverence God. He did not bring glory to God. And this is the God who says, I am the Lord. Unto my glory, I shall never give to another. And so you notice then the disobedience and the dishonor of God. He took the glory from God by suggesting that he could bring forth water. But secondly, you will notice that the disobedience and dishonoring of God leads to his exclusion from the promised land. Despite his words and his action, God produces water from the rock. Why? Because God cares for his people. 
Moses may not have obeyed him, may not have honored him, but God is merciful to Israel and he gives them water. This place is called Meribah because it is a place of strife, of struggle, of contention with God. And we are told there in verse 13, and he was hallowed among them. He was hallowed among them because of God's discipline. God was reverenced because of his discipline of Moses. Here, so we've seen then his sin of disobedience and of dishonoring God. Now we see that his disobedience and dishonoring of God leads to exclusion from the promised land. Moses discovers that sin carries unpleasant consequences. For here at Meribah, at the place of contending with God, both Moses and his partner in crime, Aaron, are excluded from entering the land. They, like the entire generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, will now die in the wilderness, apart, of course, from Joshua and Caleb. Moses joins unfaithful, rebellious Israel in the grave, in the wilderness. Moses tells us that after this sentence was passed upon him, that he went to God to talk to God about it. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23 to 27, Moses, of course, is recounting the history of Israel, and he comes to this part of his own disobedience, and he says this, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you who have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. For the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And so the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes towards the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over the Jordan. The Lord said, because you have not honored me, hallowed me, treated me as holy, you will not go in. And even when Moses went back to God, praised God, and pled with God, God says, listen, I don't want to hear anything more about this. I've said what I've said. I'm not going to change my mind. You're not going in. There is a work called the Assumption of Moses which talks about the death of Moses and said that the entire world is thy grave. Moses, we know, later in Deuteronomy 34, goes up, to, goes up to Mount Pisgah. He sees the land and he dies there. And God buries him in the valley in an unmarked grave so that no one knows where he's buried. There is a consequence for sin. We live in a world where it seems that there are different standards depending on who you are. One guy, ordinary fellow, commits a crime, and he gets a stiff fine or a stiff sentence and spends some months in jail. A celebrity, however, does the same thing. And somehow, he's given a suspended sentence. It seems that justice 
is not indeed blind. It winks and nods depending on who you are. But with God, there are no spiritual celebrities. That there is one law, one requirement for those of us who have been in the faith for many years or in some position of authority and for those who are not. That God demands obedience from all of his people. And here the Lord deals with Moses as an example before the congregation of the holiness that he requires. You must also remember that the Lord had told Moses in, in Leviticus 10 and verse 3, he says, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. God had warned him early, if you're going to stand in my presence, if you're going to worship before me, if you're going to serve before me, you must Treat me as holy and you must glorify me. You see, there is a consequence for sin. We see the exclusion of Moses from the land. We cannot get around that, that there are consequences for sin. But Moses' exclusion from the land presents, in a sense, a blessing in disguise by the grace of God. For it is true that Moses does not enter into Canaan, but he dies on top of Mount Pisgah and he is received into heaven itself. Not too bad a deal. Abraham, for many years, recognized that he was given the promise of a land. But the land that God promised to Abraham transcended Canaan. And that is the reason that Abraham and his descendants desired a better, that is, a heavenly country. They were looking for a city that had a foundation whose builder and maker is God. The reason that Abraham did not stake a claim in Canaan, it is because he knew that there was a greater land that he was going to receive, a place of rest in heaven. And though the Lord barred Moses and Aaron from entering Canaan, he took them to the heavenly Canaan. I would suggest to you that in God there is great mercy. But you know, the Lord is so great. The Lord is so fascinating. That even though he was displeased with Moses and said, you're not going to go into the land. You're not going to lead them into the land. About 1,400 years later, Moses did enter the land. Because when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, it is Moses, it is Moses and Elijah who comes to Jesus. And they are talking to him about his exodus. What a conversation that must have been. Between Moses and Jesus. You see, Moses had led an exodus out of Egypt. But now he is discussing with Jesus about a greater exodus. An exodus out of sin. An exodus out of condemnation. You see, God, even when he judges his people, remembers them in mercy. Thanks be to God Almighty for his grace. That his judgment are often mixed with mercy. 
In other words, you and I have never ever experienced the unmitigated fury and judgment of God. We would never be able to survive it. He must temper it with his mercy and kindness. My friends, this story viewed canonically, that is viewed from the perspective of the Bible as a whole, anticipates the Lord Jesus Christ and anticipates him as the obedient son. The scripture here reminds us that even the greatest of men and the most godly of men is not perfect and will fail to obey and glorify God. And Moses, therefore, like the rest of us, need the perfectly obedient Son of God. It is in this story then we see the need for the obedience of Christ who stands in contrast to Moses. For where Moses failed, Christ succeeded. Christ, the obedient son, came to do exactly what God required of Moses and of all of us, obedience. And our Lord Jesus exhibited this obedience to God in every area of his life. We read in the early accounts of his life that he went down to Nazareth and he was subject to his mother and father. He was fulfilling the fifth commandment to obey your parents in the Lord. We see when he begins his ministry that he goes to John the Baptist to be baptized and John initially refuses to baptize him saying, I am the one who should be coming to you to be baptized. But Jesus says, suffer it to be so, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this is God's righteous demand that I should be baptized on behalf of my people. He obeys. He goes out into the wilderness. And where Israel and Moses failed in the wilderness when tempted, Jesus succeeds because he meets Satan and the temptation and he overcomes them by the word of God. In fact, the entire life of Jesus Christ was characterized by obedience to the will of God. In fact, the writer, in fact, there are three specific instances in the scriptures where the term hyperkoe, obedience, is referred, is used in reference to Christ. Hyperkoe is used in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, this clearly, the writer is dealing with the testing of Jesus and his suitability as high priest. This, of course, does not mean that he was disobedient at some point and therefore God had to afflict him so that he could learn obedience. What the passage means when he said he learned obedience, it is dealing with the reality that our Lord Jesus Christ experientially learned what obedience entails. That in each situation, as he concretely obeys God, he, he understood all that it entails to be obedient to God. He learned obedience. And because of that, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Paul tells us that Christ expresses obedience in the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross in Philippians 2 verse 8. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 that the obedience of Jesus Christ 
is the basis of our salvation. Here he's contrasting in Romans 5 verse 19 the disobedience of Adam on one hand with the obedience of Christ on the other hand. That all of us at one point were in Adam. Adam was our representative head. And because of his disobedience, it says, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. By Adam's disobedience, because we are in him, we were implicated and we were constituted and considered inside of God to be sinners in Adam. But those of us who are in Christ, because of his obedience, we have now been seen and viewed and considered by God to be righteous because of Christ. You see, Christ, therefore, is the fulfillment, the one who brings to fulfillment the obedience that Moses and Israel could never, ever perform. This passage there invites us then to trust in God and not in man. We are to place our trust not in men, but in Christ and in his righteousness. The reality is that the best of us will fail. But Christ never failed. And his obedience is the basis of our righteousness. We need to realize that the obedience of Christ is of salvific value. We often spend a lot of time, and we're going to do this this evening, talking about the death of Christ on the cross. And we talk about the death of Christ on the cross as his passive obedience because there he submitted to death. We call it passive obedience. And we need that because it is by his passive obedience in, in the fact that he surrendered to our death, took our punishment, that he removes our sins. But to be saved, we not only need the passive obedience of Christ, we need the active obedience of Christ. And the active obedience of Christ refers to the entirety of his life lived in obedience to the word of God. That is the reason that Jesus Christ lived for 33 years. Because he had to fulfill actively all of God's commands. And it is his active obedience which provides the righteousness that we need. In other words, when God declares you righteous, he does so because Christ lived a righteous life for you. He credits you with the righteousness that Jesus earned by his life on earth. We need then both his active and his passive obedience. And we are to trust, not in our goodness, not in our righteousness, but we are to depend upon the obedience of Christ, that it was sufficient to cover our sins. It's the basis of our justification. It's the basis of our eternal life, the obedience of Jesus Christ. He lived for us and he died for us. And because of his life for us, we are acceptable by God as righteous. You must therefore trust in him. You must come, if you're not a Christian, to the obedience of faith. You must obey the gospel. You must believe in Jesus Christ. You must come to the obedience which is faith, that is trusting that Christ lived a perfect life and by him your sins are forgiven and you are received before God. You have to trust in the righteousness of Christ and not in your own righteousness. You will never get to heaven if you think you're good enough. But my dear friends, 
if you have come to know Jesus Christ and his righteousness, you are to reflect that new and daily obedience to God. A new and daily obedience to God. It was said that during World War II, in Britain, during the Blitz, the German bombing of London, night after night, there would be waves and waves of German planes dropping bombs on, on London. And during the Blitz, on a particular street, there was a building that remained untouched by the bombing. It was a building of historical value, having been designed by a famous architect. And right around the building, there was a lot of rubble, buildings destroyed, but this one building stood unscathed, untouched. And there was in the neighborhood who were a group of boys who did not like the notion that this building was still standing while other buildings were destroyed. So they got themselves some sledgehammers and they spent a whole day and a whole night battering down the building until it was finally reduced to a rubble and they stood on top of it in triumph. Why did they do it? They did it for no reason than that there was in them a spirit of rebellion. They did not want it to stand. And many of us are like these little boys. We are rebels without a cause. We do not want God's law to stand. We resist his will for the very sheer pleasure that we will not have him to rule over us. But God demands of his people and demands universal obedience from us in everything and at every time. Peter reminded his audience that we were chosen by God for obedience. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. We were elect by the foreknowledge that is on the basis of God's love. We were set aside by the sanctification work of the Spirit for Obedience, that is, for a life of conversion, a life of obedience to God, and for the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, that is, for a life cleansed, washed, and forgiven by the blood of Christ. But you and I were chosen for a life of obedience. In fact, Peter, therefore, could go on to say then, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. What God demands of Moses is what he demands of us today, obedience. You and I must remember that obedience is God's requirement. To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. We must obey God's prescriptive word. And there are a lot of people who love the Bible. They love the Bible and they love the stories in the Bible. There are people who have many Bibles at home. The problem is we have more Bibles and a vast amount of Bibles, a vast number of Bibles, but little obedience to what is written in it. 
Well, God requires that we are to obey him. And he's not demanding from us that slavish obedience, that obedience that comes from fear, fear of God's wrath. No, he's demanding an obedience that, 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 that is rooted in faith. Because it is only as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive the grace to obey. He's demanding an obedience that is rooted in love. An obedience that comes from a heart that is grateful to God. You and I are called to live in obedience. I wonder, is there any enclave, any particular area in your life where you're still holding out against God? Where you're saying, I will not surrender this to him. Are you listening to the voice of God as he speaks to you in the word and in Christ? You see, God speaks to you in scripture. But he speaks to you also in conscience and he speaks to you in providence. That is how he's working in circumstances. Are you obeying the voice of God in scripture and in providence and in conscience? Is there any area where you have been resisting God and holding out? This is the time to surrender. And here's why it's important. If you get nothing else, please take note of this. You see, obedience to God is the means both of blessing and honoring God. Obedience is the way to blessing, and it is a way to honor God. If I were to recast this and put it negatively, then here is it. Disobedience robs you of the blessing of God. Moses was forbidden to enter the land because he disobeyed God. And there are blessings that God would give to you. There is a deeper sense of his love, more of his providence that he will give to you, but his blessings are attached to your obedience. Listen, my friends, if you really genuinely want to know God's blessings, you must be obedient. God will never bless a disobedient Christian. It will not happen. Because if God were to do that, it would be an encouragement for us to continue in our disobedience. And God is too wise a parent. What God does, he disciplines disobedience. Disobedience robs you of the blessing of God. But more importantly, disobedience robs God of his glory. Moses failed to give God glory by striking the rock and by taking credit for the water. You and I are to live our lives in obedience to God so that God will be honored and praised. We do so because God deserves it. We do so because like Israel and Moses, we are the redeemer of the Lord. He has redeemed us from our captivity. As Israel was captive to the Egyptians, we were captive to Satan and to sin. And God has redeemed us. He has brought us out. He has rescued us with a mighty and with a powerful hand. And we, we are en route, not to a physical land, but we are en route to a new city, to a heavenly Jerusalem, to a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar. 
We, we like Moses have had a glimpse of that beautiful land from Mount Pisgah's height. We have seen something of heaven and we are en route to our dwelling place with God. We are therefore to bring honor to him because the one who attends us is the sovereign almighty God. He is the one who controls nature. He is the one who controls the desert. You see, the God that carries us in this journey is in control of the verdant plains and of the barren desert. He has power. It is he who says, there is nothing that is too hard for me. So the God who preserves Israel in the wilderness is able to preserve you in your wilderness experience. You are to honor him. You are to live for him. You see, God is the God of the mountain, of the plain, of the barren desert and all the verdant plains. You are to live to honor him. You are to be obedient to him. As he reveals his will to you in the scriptures, may you surrender to him and as you do, you will know more of his blessings and bring greater honor to him. May he help you in this and help us all for Jesus' sake. Amen. And Father, we would confess this morning that We have not always obeyed your word. We have resisted for the pleasure of resisting. And Lord, we have treated you in a manner unbecoming of your honor and glory. You deserve the riches of our lives. You would deserve the full surrender and compliance of your people because you have been so good to us. And as we make our passage Through this wilderness, you have carried us on eagles' wings. You have blessed us and kept us and forgiven us. And so we come again asking you, God, give us true, obedient hearts. Help us to be quick to obey your word and to be reluctant to sin against you. Forgive us, O God for going off on our own way and doing our own things. Make us anew. Help us to be concerned about how we live before you. And help us not to trust in yesterday's performances, but to live each day trusting in the grace that Jesus gives, trusting in his perfect righteousness for us, which saves us, and trusting in the grace he gives so that we may continually live a righteous and obedient life. Make it, we pray you, in this year, that if you should tarry when we should look back at this year, that we would have made marked progress in a life of obedience to our loving Savior. This then is our cry. Do this, we ask, because it is according to your will and for your glory. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for his sake, amen.